You know, as a people, we never can forget the foundation upon which God established this country. Nor shall we ever forget what made us and has made us great and will make us great in the days ahead. God has uniquely put his hand upon us as a people. And he has given us a stewardship and a responsibility that is vital and important. Vital because much of the world depends upon some moral light, some guidance to point the way to what is right and what is wrong. It is, it is important because the lives of millions of people depend upon your prayers, my prayers, depend upon churches that stand strong in the gap for mankind, who without any shame or any hesitation proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its power and all of its glory and all of its wisdom. A church that walks and moves in the power of the Spirit of God, a church that believes that miracles are still a part of what God is up to in our world. Amen and amen. Yesterday I was in, or two days ago, I was in the hospital room of a young gal, blind in one eye, losing sight in the second eye, just 22 years old, don't know why. Was asked by someone in our church to go visit. I went there and I prayed and I asked God, I said, God, I want to see a miracle. I want this to be for the glory of Almighty God. We began this church with that statement, you can be in the middle of a miracle and not know it. We began by saying you can expect God to do something. We prayed and she wept and I wept and we prayed and, and, uh, and I sent her, her prayer request into our prayer wall and they instantly took her name down, prayed over that name, put it in the prayer wall, and then that information went out to our prayer team. God began to take that and move it down through the corridors of his divine power and miracles. And this morning I was standing here with her boyfriend and his mom and dad, and they were thanking me for going and praying. And they said, we've got to tell you, the, the right eye that was losing sight has come back completely. And now we just need to pray for the second eye. And I said, you know, Jesus one time healed somebody in this way. He prayed for him, and he asked the guy if he could see. And he said, well, I see, but I see men walking around like trees. And Jesus said, then let's pray again. And he prayed a second time, and the man's sight was completely returned to him. I want you to know that America is walking around and seeing trees. But God is not done with this great nation called America. It is time to see the miracle of God through your prayers and my prayers. We're going to talk a bit about America. We're going to talk about America in prophecy and uh, hopefully we're, we're going to be able to have the time to communicate adequately all that we need to in this short amount of time. But prophecy is history, is the history of the future. It looks to what is to come. The Bible is a prophetic book. It speaks hundreds of times of things that will happen in the days ahead. The prophet Daniel spoke some 600 years before Christ. So 2,600 years ago, he spoke of things that we're seeing fulfilled even in our day. Miracles that are happening. The prophetic clock has begun to tick. It is spinning now, 
at an inconceivable rate of speed, and God is doing miracles in our day. Prophecy is not given to satisfy our curiosity. It reveals God's divine plan, but it always points to the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, as the only hope for mankind now and into the eternal age. I'm asked oftentimes, is America in the Bible? Can we find America in biblical prophecy? There is one or two slight references we'll refer to later, but I want to ask this question. Why isn't America in biblical prophecy, or why doesn't it play a bigger part? And here's some ideas that we might bounce around. One of them, we could say that in the prophetic scheme of things and what God is doing in the days ahead, the United States is no longer relevant to society. We could say United States will be destroyed. It just doesn't appear on the headlines. Or the United States is no longer a country or its own country. It has given itself over to its debtors. It has given itself over by its laws and by its, its uh, f- philosophy to those who do not honor and respect this nation. Rabbi Jonathan Kahn said this, The absence of any clear reference to America in the end-time prophecy is a warning, is a warning of America's fall from its position of head of nations, the end of the American age. Joel Rosenberg, uh, best-known author of prophetic events, says the Bible tells us of the future of Israel. The Bible does not tell us of the future of America. This is America's most dangerous hour. We need to pray for repentance And revival. I want you to know that God hears your prayers. Collectively, when we begin to pray, God takes notice. God wants to do what he's done in the past. When when things seem to be at a lull, when things seem to not be going well in America, God began to move through a handful of people and brought about what was called the first great awakening in America. When things began to slide again, God brought the second great awakening. And then in the 50s, he brought someone by the name of Billy Graham. And then the Jesus movement. God has always been about bringing revival and awakening to his people when they pray. He went on to say, Rosenberg, we need to plead for the Lord to grant us a great awakening. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord to pray and to fast. But we also need to understand on top of it of all other national sins and challenges our government turns against Israel the Jewish people we will seal our fate and judgment will come upon us once and for all. There is an Abrahamic blessing that goes like this. God spoke to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. He said, "I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you." Study the history of those who've turned against Israel and see where they are today. We as a people have always been pro-Israel. That doesn't mean we agree with all their philosophy. doesn't mean they're always right. It means that we hold to the promise and we honor the promise of God just like we honor the, the office of the presidency or any other elected official, even if we disagree with decisions that are made within that office. And that principle of honoring what God said he will honor must be true. Last last night late, I was reading through different uh, news agencies around the world. 
Many of the ones that I get, uh, they come in Arabic, and I have to find a button on it that says translate or in the English language. And one came across that was from Turkey. And the headline was so, just so in my face that I, I actually sent an email to Lisa, who does our slides. I said, Lisa, I know it's late. I know you're asleep. But if you wake up early... Would you put this into the notes so people can see the headline I'm getting ready to show you? Because this was released on May 30th, yesterday. And here's how it reads. Turkish president and prime minister, we will gather together all the Muslim world and invade Jerusalem. It was at the dedication of the new airport in Turkey that's named after a Muslim conqueror by the name of Saladin. Saladin came in and he took control of Jerusalem. While he was in Jerusalem there, he had a dream, a vision, a nightmare, if you will, that as he passed through the eastern gate that he was struck by lightning. He began to inquire of the Jewish writers and of those in that day, what did that mean? And they pointed him to a prophecy that we'll look at in just a moment in the book of Ezekiel chapter 44. And it said that the, that the eastern gate was to be walled up, would be shut, and the only one who could pass through it was the coming prince, the Messiah. So Saladin bricked up that opening in the eastern gate, thinking he would be safe that way. No one would go through it. He wouldn't go through it. What's interesting, because Saladin is not the name that most people have on their lips. They don't think about Saladin because he lived almost a thousand years ago. But the prime minister of Turkey went on to say in this article, these words, by Allah's will, Jerusalem belongs to the Kurds, the Turks, the Arabs, and to all Muslims. Just as our forefathers went together to liberate Jerusalem with Saladin, we will march together on the same path to liberate Jerusalem. It's interesting. He quotes Saladin, that they named the airport Saladin. It's interesting that he doesn't mention the fear in Saladin of going through the eastern gate. It would be about 300 years later that another invader would come, another conqueror of Jerusalem, and this one would come, uh, Suleiman the Magnificent would come in the 1400s. And Suleiman would come, and he would also know of the prophecy, and fear would strike at his heart, and so he ordered it to even be more secure and then ordered a cemetery out front of the eastern gate, which is there today, a Muslim cemetery, supposing that a holy man would not walk across the cemetery, would be unable to go in the eastern gate, therefore prevent him from fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel the prophet. Well, I want you to know when Jesus Christ comes again, the Bible says his foot will step down on the Mount of Olives. It will split it in two, and there is no cemetery, and there is no gate that will stop the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. Let me take you to Ezekiel chapter 44, and this is what uh, Suleiman and Saladin read and heard. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. The Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut. It doesn't give the time frame. It just says it will be shut. It shall not be opened. No man shall enter by it. Do you realize since 1143 that gate has not had a man go through it one time? 
Because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, that is, speaking of the coming Messiah, because he is the prince, he may sit in it. He may eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. So that gate for the future for Ezekiel, as he looked down the corridors of time, not knowing who or how that would be fulfilled, it was fulfilled by God taking a Muslim invader by the name of Saladin and placing him in the position to fulfill biblical prophecy. I want you to know, you have nothing to fear. A lot of people say, well, I don't want to know about prophecy because it brings fear. No, it should bring comfort. Because let me tell you something, God is in control of this universe. God is in control of the world. And you are secure in him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Trust in the Lord. Never fear man. Oh, the headlines might come, and they might rattle our confidence, but fall back into fear. And you will find yourself in despair. Fall into Jesus, and you will find yourself in power and in strength. Because God has not given us a spirit of fear that we might fall back into, but one of love and of power and of a sound mind. Now, it's interesting. When we open up our Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, we don't have these references on the screen, so I'm just going to read it to you. But in Ezekiel 38 is the next big prophetic event that we can look forward to. And in this particular chapter... God lists the countries that are going to come together in a coalition against Israel in the last days. Now, what's interesting about it is these countries have never come together in a coalition until today. Did you hear what I said? What I'm getting ready to tell you is that the coming together of these countries listed in the book of Ezekiel 38 in an end-time scenario coming against the nation of Israel, that group of countries has never come together ever. But they're together now. The Bible tells us here in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 38 that there is coming. It says, now the word of the Lord in verse 1 says, Son of man, set your face against Gog and the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against them. Now that means very little to you and I, unless we study a little bit deeper and we go into the, to the meaning of those words and the locations of those countries, that's actually referring to Russia. So there is coming this great, uh, this great warrior from the north, and it's interesting that Russia has risen up in recent days and become another uh, key player on the political and military scene. But if I drop down a bit here and I get down to verse 6, just so we keep this moving, or actually verse 5, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya, and all of them with shield and helmet. Now, Persia is the ancient name for Iran. So what we have here is we have Iran, we have Ethiopia. This is not the Ethiopia of Africa. This would be the Ethiopia that would be around uh, the Arabian Peninsula and Libya, all of them. And then it goes on, verse 6, and Gomer, and Gomer is Germany, and all of its troops and the house of Tagarma. The house of Tagarma is Turkey. Isn't that interesting? That coalition has come together, and it says to Garma from the north and all of its troops and many peoples are with you. And then in verse 8 it says, In many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those who brought you back from the sword and be gathered from many people. And here's what he says to the nation of Israel. I'm going to bring you back into the land. 
Now, there are scattered people in, the, in, the, in Ezekiel's time. They're not, they don't have their own country. They have been scattered and they have been taken in the diaspora across the world. But God says, I'm going to bring them back into the land in the latter days. Israel became a nation in 1948. In 1948, a nation was born in a day, according to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 66, brought back into existence, a miracle no one would doubt. But in 1950, they issued what was called the law of return. And in 1950, they said anybody with Jewish blood in their veins can come back and have citizenship as an Israeli. And then began this great move, first the Ethiopian airlift out of the Ethiopia uh, of Africa. And they brought in first 20 and then 30,000 people. And the most recent one in just recent years brought in what they believe was the last 1,000 people out of Ethiopia, fulfilling the prophecy of of Zechariah. Then from the great north and in the 70s, what did Russia do? They said, we want all Jews out of the country. And they pushed them out of the country. They didn't know they were fulfilling prophecy. And now you see a gathering that's happening here. God is doing it for a reason. God has a purpose. Now, if I read on into the book of Ezekiel, I find the the only real close reference I can to America in this particular book of the Bible. And it says in verse 13, it says, Sheba, Detan, and the merchants of Tarshish. Tarshish is Great Britain. But it goes on to say this. And all her young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take away booty, to carry the silver and the gold, to take away livestock goods, and to take the plunder? So Tarshish is Great Britain. Her young lions are believed to be her colonies of America, New Zealand, and Australia. And it says of the young lions, they step back when they see the invasion coming in Israel, and they say, are you really going to do that? But they don't lift a hand to help Israel. If you read ahead and you read those two chapters, 38 and 39, you find out that God brings a great miracle. It says every wall in Jerusalem falls. God brings in, he wipes out the invaders. Israel becomes powerful. Israel becomes very significant in that day. When every wall falls, I believe one of the walls that will fall will be that wall that's holding up a mosque in Israel. Realize Jerusalem is not mentioned one time in, in the Quran but over 600 times in the Bible. It's not significant in, in, in the history of Islam, but it is significant in the history of the Judeo-Christian faith. It is important. When that wall falls, when the armies have been devastated, I believe what's going to happen is that's going to enter in then that opportunity for Israel to build the temple of the last days. There will be a covenant of peace made that will last only a short time. But you see, God has got a plan. It'll be interesting to see how he unfolds it. Let me just take a step back and remind you of our great Christian heritage. You remember the name Christopher Columbus. He said this, It was the Lord who put into my mind. I could feel his hand upon me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous inspiration from his Holy Scriptures. Does that sound like a secular explorer? That sounds like a man who knew Christ and knew the power of the Holy Spirit. When this country began to be formed and we began to see the documents and all of the, uh, the inaugural addresses and all the things that made us important, it was the Rhode Island Charter of 1638 that said this, We submit our persons and our lives 
and our estates unto the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and to all those absolute laws he has given us in his holy word. Does it sound like they were confused about separation of church and state? They were not. George Washington's inaugural address in 1789, in part to Congress, says this, It would be particularly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications that the almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, whose providential aid can supply every human defect, that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and the happiness of the people of the United States. Doesn't sound like a secularist. Alexis D. de Coqueville, he was a traveler. He was from nobility. He came, he came from France. He wanted to understand something about this great American experiment, this miracle that had taken place where democracy had risen up and where people were free and economies were flourishing. And he was contrasting with the French Revolution in his own country and what it had done to a nation. And he said this, I sought for the greatness and the strength of America in her commodious harbors and her rivers, but I didn't find it there. In her fertile fields and her boundless prairies, but I didn't find it there. Not until I went into the churches and I found pulpits aflame with righteousness, then I discovered the source of strength in America. America is great because America is good. If America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14. God gives a promise. It's a promise is directed to his own people. But it's a promise in principle that can be applied to any people in any time. Listen to what he says. God says, when I shut up a heaven, shut up the heaven, and there is no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. You see, God can do that. God says, sometimes I'm going to use the circumstances and disasters of the world to get your attention. If I cause a drought, if I cause the locusts to devour you or your income, it's only that I might get your attention. Every difficulty and every challenge that we face in life is always so God gets our attention. So that we humble ourselves before the Almighty God, we seek His face. And we know that without him, we are nothing. We can do nothing. Oh, we can stand up and say, look at me and look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. But you remember, the breath that is in your lung is given by God Almighty. And this is the promise he says, if my people who are called by my name. Oh, we know that he called out a people named Israel out through Abraham. But you know what? There's a calling on us as well. God, we are your people. We are called by your name, the name of Jesus Christ. And it says this. Here's the promise. Look at it. We'll humble themselves. Just admit you can't handle it. America, California, Southern California, influence, mom and dad, boys and girls. Humble yourself and then pray. And when you pray, don't be so caught up in what you need or what you want, but seek. It says, seek my face. Would you seek my face? You ever talk to someone who wouldn't look you in the eye? 
I was talking to a man the other day, and he wouldn't look me in the eye. And I kept moving. I got down like this. He just, and he was, he was the quickest dodger I could ever see. And I, I'm moving, I'm trying to get here. And I go, hey, dude, I'm trying to follow you, but you're darting everywhere. Would you look me in the eye? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know I wasn't doing that. Just look me in the eye. I want to see what's going on in there because the eyes are the windows of the heart. God says, when you seek my face, you look into my heart. When you look into my heart, you know what you need. You know what's important. You know what's significant. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray, will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Look at the promise. In my Bible, I just circle that word then because it doesn't happen until I do the first part. This is a conditional promise of God. If you'll do this, I'll do that. Then I will hear from heaven. Then I will hear from heaven. You know what's amazing about this passage? It doesn't tell us how many people have to do that. It doesn't say if all of you will, or if some of you will, or if five of you will. I have a funny feeling that God hears the prayers of every one of us. Amen? And collectively, when we begin to pray, when we begin to seek his face, when we begin to humble, when we ourselves before him, when we begin to forsake our wicked way, and we intercede, we stand in the gap. For our nation, we stand in the gap for our family. We stand in the gap for our church and our friends, and we begin to pray, Oh, God, God, I can't handle this. I can't do this, God. I pray, God, I want to look into your eyes. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to pray? How do I respond, God? And God begins to speak. God says, Oh, you got my attention. I've been waiting. America, I've been waiting. I want to do something new and fresh. I want to see a great movement, a great revival. I want to see the Holy Spirit poured out again on a nation. I want to see the kingdom of God come in great power, in great power. And if you will, then I will. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Amen. What a promise. Amen. That's the promise of God. Put your hands together and give God the glory for his great promises. That's for you. That is your promise and my promise and for our children and our children's children. There is a promise to come. I believe that God is calling forth an army of mighty intercessors who will push back the darkness. When the darkness begins to invade, the mighty intercessors will push it back and say, no, not yet. There's still another soul that needs to be saved. No, there's still somebody else that needs to be healed. No, not yet, not yet, not yet. We are going to push back the darkness. Brave men and women of the kingdom prepared for these last days before the return of Christ who will say, we will pray, we will seek God, we will proclaim there is a revival coming and we want to be a part of it. We want to be a catalyst. We want to see the Spirit of God move in your life, in my life, and across this land and see God come forth in a great way. Amen and amen. The only question is, will you be a part of it? See, that's the question. Will you and I be a part of it? Or we watch from a distance and say, wouldn't that be nice? Or are we skeptical and say, well, that's, we're just too far gone. Can't happen. Hey, that's been said before. And yet God, what God can do in a minute we can't do in a thousand years. God calls the nations to attention. 
He calls the laws to attention. He calls mankind to attention. And he says, listen, listen to me. I'm in your midst. Be still and know that I am God. The God of Jacob is with us. Come behold the works of the Lord. What devastation he has wrought in the earth. Oh, the nations rage. They take up their arms against the Lord and his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens shall laugh if he brings him into derision. Psalm 2. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinner or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate both day and night. And he should be like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in all of its season. In all that he does, he prospers. That is the promise of God. Psalm 1. See, the Bible is a promise book. Will you be a part of it? That is the question. About six to seven weeks ago, we began praying here on Tuesday morning from 9 to 10.30. We didn't make a big deal out of it. We didn't really invite anybody. We just wanted to begin to pray as a people. We began to gather, and we said, when the time's right, we're going to invite people to come and pray with us. We do worship. We do prayer. We've seen God do some amazing things already. We want to invite you to come this Tuesday, June 2nd. We're going to pray for America. When you put those hands together and you clapped, it meant I'm willing to get involved. Now, you may not have the availability to be here. You may be working. You may have something else. But if you don't have, if you don't have any place you have to be, I want you to come sometime between 9 and 10.30. You can stay for the whole time. You can come for five minutes. You can come late. But come and pray. A good friend of mine who's a, a published best-selling author whose name I can't tell you because he wrote this book. It's just labeled by an American. He paid for it all. He didn't, uh, he didn't want any money for it. He didn't want his own position to somehow detract from what the message was. It's called The American Ideas. If you open it up, inside it says, To Phil, Best Wishes, an American. I didn't even know he wrote it until six months after I got it. I got it in the mail. I thought, well, this, is, this is interesting and free book, and that's a good thing. <laughs> Being Dutch, it was helpful. I began to read it. I thought, this is really good. And then I had dinner with him six months later. He said, how would you like the book? I said, what book? And he told me. I said, uh, I talked to him just this past week, and I said, would you send me a case of those? Because I want to give them out on Tuesday morning. I don't know how amazing the case. I don't know how far they'll go. But the first people who get here, you're going to get a book by an American. It's got all the great documents, all the great quotes, all the great information that you want to know and hear about right there in its pages. And I think you'll find it to be thrilling. So be here Tuesday morning. C.H. Spurgeon was a great preacher from, from England. Listen to what he said. Brethren... We want renewed appearances and fresh manifestations and new visitations from on, from on high. And I commend to those of you who are getting on in life that while you thank God for the past and look back with joy to his visits to you in your early days, you now seek and ask for a second visitation of the Most High. Here is this preacher who preached to crowds of over 10,000 in the 1800s. He said, I know you saw God do something 
yesterday. But don't you want to see God do something today? Don't you want a fresh visitation from God? Don't you want God's spirit to speak to you in a fresh and a new way? William Booth, the founder of the the Salvation Army, said this, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Church has to rise up. Washington, during the darkest hours of the Revolutionary War at Valley Forge, wrote these words in his journal. I beseech thee, my sins, remove them from thy presence as far as the east is from the west, and accept of me for the merits of thy son, Jesus Christ, that when I come into thy temple and I compass thine altar, my prayers may come before thee as incense as thou wouldest hear me calling upon thee in my prayers. So give me grace to hear. Hear thee calling on me in thy word that it may be wisdom, righteousness, reconciliation, and peace to the saving of my soul in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Founder of our nation, the father of our nation. Listen to what he said. To the saving of my soul in the day of Lord Jesus One of my favorite military heroes is General Douglas MacArthur. Not simply because of what he did for our nation, but because of the heart he had for Jesus Christ. Totally committed to the cause of Christ. He said this. He said, history fails to record a single precedent in which nations subject to moral decay have not passed into political and economic decline. There has either been a spiritual awakening to overcome the moral lapse or a progressive deterioration leading to ultimate natural disaster. I want revival. Amen? I want my children's children to be able to love Jesus, proclaim Jesus, announce Jesus and see people saved. I want to see him pray for people to be healed. I want to see miracles happen. I want to see God all over them and bless them everywhere. You know, the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro across the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. When your heart is completely his, you don't get distracted. You don't let the difficulties and the challenges of life distract you. You say, I have something more important to do, and it's called Jesus. It's called the kingdom of God. I can't let the distractions of life pull me down. I've got a mission, and I've got a a short time span. I don't know how much longer I have on this life. Quite honestly, pastoring, I thought I'd be dead by now. But I know one thing. I got my eye on the kingdom, on Jesus, the anchor and finisher of my faith, who for the joy set before me, before him, he said, he endured the cross. If he would do that for me, what can I do for him? What can be too much for me to do? There is an opportunity. The American philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was not a Christian, by the way, but he reminded us something. He reminded us that we are very near to greatness. He reminded us we are one step and we are safe. 
And then he asks the question, can we not take the leap? Can we not take that step? If I can take what he said and I can put it in the context of faith, we are very near. We fall back into fear. We are one step and we are safe. Can we not take the step? No matter how tattered we may feel as a people, we're only one reach, one step, one leap away from renewed greatness. The truth is we've gotten somewhere off track. But happily, we can still see the track. I love that statement. We can still see the track. I don't care how far you get away from God as an individual, you're still going to be able to see the track because the Spirit of God is in you and He's always pulling you back. I tell people, I said, you know, the most miserable person in the world is a Christian who's not living for Jesus. They're miserable. They're like a fish out of water. They don't know what to do. Happiest guy is a guy who doesn't know God. Hey, I'm just happy. What's going on? Yeah. Then he finds out about God and he goes, oh, I'm not so happy anymore. You mean I got to stand before him and give an account? Yeah, that's kind of how it works. But I tell you what, the person who's filled with joy, and that's different than happiness, filled with joy in spite of circumstances, the person who loves Jesus, walks in the Spirit, lives in the power of God, and says, you know what? We are right there. We can still see the track. We're moving forward. But happily, it goes on to, he goes on to write, but happily, we can still see the track. It's right there in front of us. We don't have to reinvent the track because the track is already ours. We're on the track, the Jesus track. And that train may slow down. It might get derailed. It might take the wrong path once in a while, but we still got the track. We got Jesus, and we got the kingdom. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you, if you're not on the track, to get on the track. If you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, I want to challenge you to come to faith in him. I want to challenge you, if you are a believer, to do something with what God has given you. We cannot be silent. There is an an all-out effort to silence Christians worldwide. There's a total neglect of all that's happening in the Middle East and what ISIS is doing. Total neglect of what's happening to Christians. Do you think really and truly that is not the destiny of other parts of the world as well? It is time to speak up. It is time to be men and women of God. It is time to be boldly and proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. You say, I don't know how. Open your mouth. You'd be surprised what will come out. Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you start telling that to people? Jesus Christ is Lord. I was sharing faith with someone the other day, and as I was sharing faith with them, they didn't have faith. They began to cry. Made this statement. I've been waiting for somebody to tell me about Jesus. I've been waiting for somebody to tell me about Jesus. We're going to do something a little different here. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to, as the band plays, uh, just softly in in a minute, and then later we'll sing, but as the band plays, I want you to, and by the way, this is the most important part of the service. A lot of people think the most important part is the music or, you know, the sermon, but I want you to know the most important part is what you do with what you've heard. That is the most important part, because this is where the Spirit of God has a chance to speak. Here's what I want to do. Just bow your heads. And I want you to, however God spoke to you today, whatever God said to you, 
Would you take that message and would you commit it to him? Maybe he said to you, you know, you have free time on Tuesday. You should go pray. Then come pray. Spirit of God speaks to you. Say, you know what? You should open your mouth. You've got people that need to hear about Jesus. Then you should open your mouth. You should recommit your life to me. Then you should recommit your life to me. See, we believe that the Spirit of God speaks and that he moves by revelation. He reveals to every one of us. There's no one here that can't receive from God. But you have to listen. Be still and know that I am God, he says. What's he saying to you right now? How's he moving you? How's he pushing you? What direction? Could be that he's pushing you in that direction of salvation. Then receive him. You say, well, I'm a Christian already. Then take that commitment you have, whatever level it's at, and just take it up to another level. Don't do it out of guilt. No, do it out of love. You love Jesus, and you want to do that. You love your country. Then pray for your country. Get involved in your country. Get involved in your church. Fulfill the law of God in your life. The other thing that's going to be a little different about this is I've never quite done this before except for the first time in the service before this, but we're going to take an offering. We didn't do it earlier because we wanted the flow of the service to be consistent with what we were trying to accomplish but um, So I've never taken an offering uh, other than today with people standing up and singing. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful in the, in the Greek is where we get our word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. I've never seen people break out in laughter because they were given so much. I'd like you to try it today. But I'd like you to give only if God leads you to give. See, all of life is about an offering, isn't it? It's about offering myself to God. It's about loving God. I think giving ought to be the same way. Man, God spoke to me. Sometimes God will move my heart to give in such a way, and I go, well, that's crazy. And then I'll do it anyway, and then God blesses me. Sometimes a blessing doesn't come right away. Sometimes it waits a little while. It's been on vacation. Have you ever had a blessing on vacation? You know, it's been on vacation, take a little time off. It's going to show up sooner or later. I just know it's coming. Here's what I do. I live in I know it's coming world. I know it's coming. I know it's coming. I know it's coming. I know it's coming. Let me pray for this offering. Father, as we take this offering, we do it in a, in a way that just is a little bit different for us, God. Standing up, singing, asking people to laugh about their giving. God, that's just crazy. Somehow, God, I think you enjoy it. Telling people that they don't feel led to give, don't give. Put guilt behind you and let revelation speak. Let the Spirit of God move. God is in our midst. He is doing great things. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here in all your power and all your glory. I pray not only will your presence be known right now, but God, it'll be felt, God. There'll be like a thick, cloud or a fog that comes of the presence of the Spirit of God during this song. People will sense that there is a coming movement of God. There is a revival and awakening coming, and we want to be a part of it. Almighty God, come in great power. Come, Holy Spirit, now and touch us as we sing, as we lift up your name and proclaim, great is our God. Amen and amen.